Section 17 of Black Experience in America, 18th to 20th Century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Passing Tradition and the African Civilization by Monroe N. Work. Black Experience in America, 18th to 20th Century by Various. Section 17 The Passing Tradition and the African Civilization by Monroe N. Work From the Journal of Negro History, Volume 1, January 1916 A close examination shows that what we know about the Negro, both of the present and the past, vitally affects our opinions concerning him. Men's beliefs concerning things are to a large extent determined by where they live and what has been handed down to them. We believe in a hell of roaring flames where in the fiercest of heat the souls of the wicked are subject to eternal burnings. This idea of hell was evolved in the deserts of the Arabian Peninsula where heat is one of the greatest forces of nature with which man has to contend. Among the native tribes of northern Siberia, dwelling in the regions of perpetual ice and snow, hell is a place filled with great chunks of ice upon which the souls of the wicked are placed and there subjected to eternal freezings. This idea of hell was evolved in the regions where man is in a continual battle with the cold. The beliefs of Negroes concerning themselves have to a large extent been made for them. The reader, no doubt, will be interested to know that the prevailing notions concerning the inferiority of the Negro grew up to a large extent as the concomitant to Negro slavery in this country. The bringing of the first Negroes from Africa as slaves was justified on the grounds that they were heathen. It was not right, it was argued, for Christians to enslave Christians, but they could enslave heathen, who as a result would have an opportunity to become Christians. These Negro slaves did actually become Christians, and as a result the colonists were forced to find other grounds to justify their continuation of the system. The next argument was that they were different from white people. Here we have a large part of the beginnings of the doctrine of the inferiority of the Negro. When, about 1830, anti-slavery agitation arose in this country, a new set of arguments were brought forward to justify slavery. First in importance were those taken from the Bible. Science also was called upon and brought forward a large number of facts to demonstrate that by nature the Negro was especially fitted to be a slave. It happened that about this time anthropology was being developed. Racial differences were some of the things which especially interested scientists in this field. The races were defined according to certain physical characteristics. These, it was asserted, determined the superiority or inferiority of races. The true Negro race, said the early anthropologists, had characteristics which especially indicated its inferiority. Through our geographies, histories, and encyclopedias, we have become familiar with representations of this so-called true Negro, whose chief characteristics were a black skin, woolly hair, protuberant lips, and a receding forehead. Caricaturists seized upon these characteristics and popularized them in cartoons, in songs, and in other ways. Thus it happened that the Negro, through the descriptions that he got of himself, 
has come largely to believe in his inherent inferiority, and that to attain superiority he must become like the white man in color, in achievements, and, in fact, along all lines. In recent years it has been asked, why cannot the Negro attain superiority along lines of his own? That is, instead of simply patterning after what the white man has done, why cannot the Negro, through music, art, history, and science, make his own special contributions to the progress of the world? This question has arisen because in the fields of science and history there have been brought forward a number of facts which prove this possibility. First of all, the leading scientists in the field of anthropology are telling us that while there are differences of races, there are no characteristics which per se indicate that one race is inferior or superior to another. The existing differences are differences in kind, not in value. On the other hand, whatever superiority one race has attained over another has been largely due to environment. A German writer in a discussion on the origin of African civilizations said some time ago, quote, What bold investigators, great pioneers, still find to tell us in civilizations nearer home proves more and more clearly that we are ignorant of hoary Africa. Somewhat of its present perhaps we know, but of its past little. Open an illustrated geography, and compare the type of the African negro, the bluish-black fellow of the protuberant lips, the flattened nose, the stupid expression, and the short curly hair, with the tall bronze figures from dark Africa with which we have of late become familiar, their almost fine-cut features, slightly arched nose, long hair, etc., and you have an example of the problems pressing for solution. In other respects, too, the genuine African of the interior bears no resemblance to the accepted Negro type as it figures on drug and cigar store signs, wearing a shabby stovepipe hat, plaid trousers, and a very colored coat. A stroll through the corridors of the Berlin Museum of Ethnology teaches that the real African need by no means resort to the rags and tatters of bygone European splendor. He has precious ornaments of his own, of ivory and plumes, fine pleated willow ware, weapons of superior workmanship. Justly can it be demanded, what sort of civilization is this? Whence does it come? It is also pointed out that one of the most important contributions to the civilization of mankind was very probably made by the Negro race. This was the invention of the smelting of iron. The facts brought forward to support this view are that no iron was smelted in Europe before 900 B.C., that about 3000 B.C. there began to appear on the Egyptian monuments pictures of Africans bringing iron from the south to Egypt, that at a time considerably later than this, iron implements began to appear in Asia, that there is no iron ore in Egypt, and that in Negro Africa iron ore is abundant. In many places it is found on top of the ground, and in some parts it can be melted by simply placing a piece of ore in the fire very much as you would a potato to be roasted. Studies in the fields of ancient and medieval history are also showing that in the past there were in Negro Africa civilizations of probable indigenous origin which attained importance enough to be mentioned in the writings of those historians and poets of those periods. The seat of one of the highest of these civilizations was Ethiopia. Here the Negro nation attained the greatest fame. As early as 2,500 years before the birth of Christ, the Ethiopians appeared to have had a considerable civilization. It was well known to the writers of the Bible and is referred to therein some forty-nine times. 
In Genesis we read of Cush, the eldest son of Ham. Cush is the Hebrew word for black, and means the same as Ethiopia. One of the most famous sons of Cush was Nimrod, whom the Bible mentions as being a mighty hunter before the Lord, whereof it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The Bible refers to Ethiopia as being far distant from Palestine. In the book of Isaiah we read, The land of the rustling of wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, that sendeth ambassadors by the sea. The rivers of Ethiopia mentioned in Isaiah are the upper tributaries of the Nile, the Atbara, the Blue Nile, and the Sabat. The later capital of Ethiopia was Meroe. Recent excavations have shown Meroe to have been a city larger than Memphis. The Temple of Ammon, where kings were crowned, was one of the largest in the valley of the Nile. The great walls of cut stones were fifteen feet thick and thirty feet high. Heaps of iron slag and furnaces from smelting iron were discovered, and there were magnificent keys and landing places on the riverside for the export of iron. Excavations have also shown that for 150 years Egypt was a dependency of Ethiopia. The kings of the 23rd and 24th Egyptian dynasties were really governors appointed by Ethiopian overlords, while the 25th dynasty was founded by the Ethiopian king Sabako in order to check Assyrian aggression. Palestine was enabled to hold out against Assyria by Ethiopian help. Sennacherib's attempt to capture Jerusalem and carry the Jews into captivity was frustrated by the army of the Ethiopian king Taharqa. The nation and religion of Judah were thus preserved from being absorbed in the heathen lands like the lost ten tribes. The Negro soldiers of the Sudan saved the Jewish religion. The old Greek writers were well acquainted with Ethiopia. According to them, in the most ancient times, there existed to the south of Egypt a nation and a land designated as Ethiopia. This was the land where the people with the sunburnt faces dwelt. The Greek poet Homer mentions the Ethiopians as dwelling at the uttermost limits of the earth, where they enjoyed personal intercourse with the gods. In one place Homer said that Neptune, the god of the sea, had gone to fast with the Ethiopians who dwell afar off, the Ethiopians who are divided into two parts, the most distant of men, some at the setting of the sun, others at the rising. Herodotus, the Greek historian, described the Ethiopians as long-lived and their country as extending to the southern sea. The great fame of the Ethiopians is thus sketched by the eminent historian Hiran, who in his historical researches says, quote, in the earliest traditions of nearly all the more civilized nations of antiquity, the name of this distant people is found. The annals of the Egyptian priests were full of them. The nations of Inner Asia, on the Euphrates and the Tigris, have interwoven the fictions of the Ethiopians with their own traditions of the conquests and wars of their heroes, and, at a period equally remote, they glimmer in Greek mythology. When the Greeks scarcely knew Italy and Sicily by name, the Ethiopians were celebrated in the verses of their poets. They spoke of them as the remotest nation, the most just of men, the favorites of the gods. The lofty inhabitants of Olympus journey to them and take part in their feasts. Their sacrifices are the most agreeable of all that mortals can offer them. And when the faint gleam of tradition and fable gives way to the clear light of history, 
the luster of the Ethiopians is not diminished. They still continue to be the object of curiosity and admiration, and the pens of cautious, clear-sighted historians often place them in the highest rank of knowledge and civilization." Of these facts, most modern historians know but little, and Negroes in general almost nothing. For example, how many have ever heard of Al-Bakri, the Arab writer, who in the 11th century wrote a description of the Western Sudan of such importance that it gained him the title of the Historian of Negro Land? How much, by means of research, might be learned of the town of Ghana situate on the banks of the Niger? which the historian Albuquerque described as a meeting place for commercial caravans from all parts of the world. This town, he said, contained schools and centers of learning. It was the resort of the learned, the rich, and the pious of all nations. Likewise, most of us have never heard perhaps of another Arab writer, Ibn Khaldun, who in writing about the middle of the fourteenth century of Mele, another of the kingdoms of Sudan, reported that caravans from Egypt consisting of 12,000 laden camels passed every year through one town on the eastern border of the empire on their way to the capital of the nation. The load of a camel was 300 pounds. 12,000 camel loads amounted, therefore, to something like 1,600 tons of merchandise. At this time we are told that there was probably not a ship in any of the merchant navies of the world which could carry 100 tons. 250 years later, the average tonnage of the vessels of Spain was 300 tons and that of the English much less. The largest ship, which Queen Elizabeth had in her navy, the Great Mary, had a capacity of a thousand tons, but it was considered an exception and the marvel of the age. Another thing that is not generally known is the importance to which some of these Negro kingdoms of the Western Sudan attained during the Middle Ages and the first centuries of the modern era. In size and permanency they compared favorably with the most advanced nations of Europe. The kingdom of Mele, of which the historian Ibn Khaldun wrote, had an area of over 1,000 miles in extent, and existed for 250 years. It was the first of the kingdoms of the western Sudan to be received on equal terms with the contemporary white nations. The greatest of all the Sudan states was the kingdom of Songhay, which in its golden age had an area almost equal to that of the United States, and existed from about 750 A.D. to 1591. There is a record of the kings of Songhay in regular succession for almost 900 years. The length of the life of the Songhay Empire coincides almost exactly with the life of Rome from its foundation as a republic to its downfall as an empire. The greatest evidences of the high state of civilization which the Sudan had in the 14th and 15th centuries were the attention that was paid to education and the unusual amount of learning that existed there. The University of Sankor at Timbuktu was a very active center of learning. It was in correspondence with the universities of North Africa and Egypt. It was in touch with the universities of Spain. In the 16th century, Timbuktu had a large learned class living at ease and busily occupied with the elucidation of intellectual and religious problems. The town swarmed with students. Law, literature, grammar, theology, and the natural sciences were studied. The city of Mele had a regular school of science. One distinguished geographer is mentioned, and allusions to surgical science show that the old maxim of the Arabian schools 
he who studies anatomy pleases God, was not forgotten. One of these writers mentions that his brother came from Jene to Timbuktu to undergo an operation for the cataract of the eyes at the hands of a celebrated surgeon there. It is said that the operation was wholly successful. The appearance of comets, so amazing to Europe of the Middle Ages and at the present time to the ignorant, was by these learned blacks noted calmly as a matter of scientific interest. Earthquakes and eclipses excited no great surprise. The renowned writer of the Sudan was Abdurrahman Esadi. He was born in Timbuktu in 1596. He came of learned and distinguished ancestors. He is chief author of the history of Sudan. The book is said to be a wonderful document. The narrative deals mainly with the modern history of the Songhai Empire and relates the rise of this black civilization through the 15th and 16th centuries and its decadence up to the middle of the 17th century. The noted traveler, Bart, was of the opinion that the book forms one of the most important additions that the present age has made to the history of mankind. The work is especially valuable for the unconscious light which it throws upon the life, manners, politics, and literature of the country. It presents a vivid picture of the character of the men with whom it deals. It is sometimes called the Epic of Sudan. From this brief sketch which I have given of the African in ancient and medieval times, it is clear that Negroes should not despise the rock from which they were hewn. As a race, they have a past which is full of interest. It is worthy of serious study. From it we can draw inspiration, for it appears that not all black men everywhere throughout the ages have been hewers of wood and drawers of water. On the contrary, through long periods of time there were powerful black nations which have left the records of their achievements, and of which we are just now beginning to learn a little. This little, however, which we have learned, teaches us the Negroes of today should work and strive. Along their own special line and in their own peculiar way, they should endeavor to make contributions to civilization. Their achievements can be such that once more black will be dignified, and the fame of Ethiopia again spread throughout the world. End of section 17